Hello and welcome to Against the Law, the myth-busting ancient history podcast that aims to separate fact from fiction. You're joining us with a literal bang as we start season seven, since this is the first of our trio of episodes on sex, money and power. Now, as you can imagine, we've got a load of juicy topics to delve into today, but alongside that, we're also going to mention a topic that might make you feel uncomfortable. Towards the end of the podcast, you'll hear me introduce the topic of pederasty, which is the word used to describe an often sexual relationship between an adult man and an underage boy, which nowadays we'd rightfully consider paedophilia. This wasn't the case in the ancient world, as you'll learn in this episode, but if you prefer, you can skip three minutes forward to avoid the topic entirely. Now, let me introduce you to the Ancient Sex Education Board. We've of course got Senya, who's getting gall deep in conversation about the ancient Romans. Meg is here to dispel any funny business about the sex lives of the ancient Greeks. And Barney is here to smash rumours in the ancient Near East. And I'm Flo. I might be a virgin when it comes to knowledge about the ancient world, but I am here for a good time. So if you're enthusiastically consenting, dear listener, let's score some historical truths together. So, let's come to it. We are uh, discussing sex, and it is a whopper of an episode today. Um, Previously, we've had a psychopomp, which is an ancient guide to the underworld, guiding us through various topics. But today, uh, we thought it'd be fitting to have a guide uh, to the ancient world of sex. Barney, would you mind introducing Ishtar to the audience? Yes. Hello, this is Ishtar. She will be your horny guide for the day. Ishtar is the Mesopotamian goddess of sex and war. I'd say she's she's not just a she's not just a love goddess in the sort of the eros cupid sense. It's very much tied in with violence as well. I thought maybe because she's a bit less of a familiar love goddess name that she could be our guide through all things sexual in the ancient world, uh, of which of course it is rife. So Ishtar will be popping up and. Uh, Dousing people with glasses of water if they get a bit too heated as we as we make this journey through the top sexiest moments in ancient <laughs> history. Or she might douse them in glasses of beer. Yep, they're pretty big fans of getting the beer out for uh, for sexual moments in Mesopotamia, which I think we'll come on to later. We will come on to that later. Uh, I'm sorry. It begins. I'm sorry. I'm trying to be professional uh, as I navigate this topic, but it's it's very hard. No, it's difficult. <laughs> Do you think we need a new a new sound effect? I, actually, I think we'd, we'd we'd wear it out almost immediately, right? They're like the innuendo. We sound <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So first and foremost, I'm hoping that we go against the law on this. But my view of uh, the ancient world of sex uh, from from my school days would be that people were quite reserved so I think I plaster everyone with the sort of the attitude that the Victorians had to sex although in later years I've discovered that actually the Victorians were quite debauched in their own way so the ancients were they prim and proper and and shied away from all things sexual or have I got that completely wrong uh Zenia I'm going to start with you in the ancient Romans if that's okay of course uh, so yes and no, people could be quite prim and proper around marital sex and the, the kind of reasons for that are because you want uh, an heir, you want to procreate, you want to continue your family line um, and so it's quite important that you know exactly who the daddy is. But I, I think there was like a genealogical study that um, worked out that throughout history like there's 
10% of all people are illegitimate. <laughs> so I think um, throughout history, we've really struggled with the sort of prim and proper attitude actually having results. Anyway, so aside from the marital sex, you also have prostitution in ancient Rome. It was legal, although you like there were quite clear definitions about what made up a legal prostitute and what made up an illegal prostitute as well. You get quite a lot of poets talking about all the affairs that they're having, and some of them make it quite clear that the, the women with whom they're having affairs, the women they're writing this poetry to, um, those women are married. Um, sometimes the poets are married <laughs> as well. Um, and you have lots of examples of gay sex as well. So I can go a little bit more into each of those, but those are kind of the some examples of lots and lots of sex happening in uh, the Roman Empire. Good for them. Uh, let's <laughs> delve into that. We'll delve into that as the podcast goes on. Meg, I'm going to go over to you. Attitudes towards sex. What's going on in the ancient Greek world? I'd say relatively similar, as as is quite often the case between the Greeks and the Romans. Just not a huge amount about marital sex. Like, we don't have that many records about it. I think it's seen as a private thing because it involves women. Um, and women are seen as more of a private thing in ancient Greece. It's, it's a sort of, it is a bit of an against the law that women were kind of locked up in houses and not allowed to have any kind of public life. But in general, that is the, the skew of it, that women don't really have a public life as much as men do at all in, in ancient Athens, particularly. So because it's between a man and a woman, it's seen as a sort of private thing, whereas sex between men and even sex with prostitutes is seen as a much more public thing. Um, so there's a lot more discussion about it. There's a lot more evidence for it in terms of literary sources, visual sources, um, all that kind of thing. So I think similar to Xenia, there's there's some prim and proper husbands and wives quietly bonking in their villas um, in ancient Greece, but we don't know much about that. We know a lot about men having sex with each other. We know like really quite a lot about prostitution. They masturbated. So yeah, a, a good range. Lovely range. Nice, healthy uh, uh, range of, of sexual activity there. Mm, absolutely. And of course, Barney, you've, you've got a little bit more to cover uh, with the ancient Near East. What are, what are the attitudes that you've uh, discovered in your research there? Well, it's maybe a similar situation to Meg in that there are lots of sources, uh, literary sources about uh, sex and sexual love uh, in the ancient Near East, especially from Mesopotamia. There are sort of relatively less um, private sources, you know, about, yeah, as you say, about marital sex. Um, I think we've talked about we've talked about marriage and divorce and stuff before, which is obviously linked in with with sex, but it's not kind of like explicit. Uh, so, yeah, the representations of sex that we're looking at are probably more poems and hymns in religious contexts and uh, certain rituals, um, which predictably are to do with fertility and rejuvenation of the land that the king might have to take part in and stuff like that. But representations of sexual activity aren't like super rare. Um, there are these mass-produced plaques that were very common in the um, old Babylonian period, which is around sort of 1800 BC, of sexual activities. And it's a classic category of object, which I think we should probably have a sound effect for at some point, which is, uh, don't know what it is, must be religious. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the classic. Yeah, um, and these are these plaques are terracotta, and they uh, depict sex scenes. Um, my favorite example is a is a woman standing drinking beer, 
she's crouching over to um, drink the beer with this, the long straw that was typical of uh, of having to get through all the scum at the top of the beer to get to the liquid at the bottom. And uh, at the other end, uh, she is being penetrated by a male partner. Good for her. Yeah, great time. <laughs> Multitasking. <laughs> Women are incredible. <laughs> <laughs> women in STEM, no, STEM in no. oh, STEM in women. Oh, <laughs> oh God! And uh, so I might have to cut that. Um, <laughs> but I found an example of one of these in the British Museum, and in typical twentieth um, century style, the the actual like accession information for it is very uh, is very dry. One of these ones, my favourite example, was donated in nineteen twenty five with the tag, one plaque, two figures. With religious <laughs> representation. <laughs> One plaque, two figures. <laughs> That's great. Anyway, yeah, so don't um don't put that into your favourite adult search engine. No, absolutely not. That's so clinical, isn't it? I love that. That's the most clinical yeah. way you could possibly describe it. Is it sort of like a pictorial sort of Kama Sutra? You know, there's a, the Sanskrit text uh, that is about having sex in different sexual positions yeah i don't know why like religious and, and ritual is the first thing that that comes up for these because you know it's the sort of thing you could imagine like hanging in you know in some sort of place of work either beer related or sex related or you know if not both um but yeah the fact that they were mass produced also suggests that maybe they might have been you know in found in private contexts in people's homes and stuff like that so yeah that that kind of chimes with the with the karma sutra are they like ancient porn magazines yeah maybe yeah it's like the idea of you know getting the getting the blood flowing by looking at one of these were they found in bushes by ancient railways because that's apparently how you <laughs> used to be able to find porn magazines i think they were mostly found in shoe boxes under uh, teenagers and the... beds <laughs> yeah <laughs> ancient shoe boxes <laughs> But so, yes, sex is, uh, you know, part of part of Mesopotamian life, but not, you know, not, we don't hear much about it in private context. Egypt, I think there's less to say about sex in, in ancient Egypt. Obviously, there's the same fertility stuff and, you know, genitalia prominent in sort of religious art with, you know, breasts and suckling and stuff like that and uh, fertility gods with with large penises. But, um, you know, sources about prostitution and, and other texts covering sex, not quite as big a deal in Egypt. So probably have less to say about that today. Um, I'm sure there is an expert on sex in Egypt out there. I hope they're listening and I hope they can join us in the future. But yeah, today, not so much about Egypt. No worries. I think there's going to be more than enough to cover in the episode regardless. What you said about the, the one plaque, two figures um, has reminded me of, uh, I know in Pompeii that there was graffiti on the walls talking about brothels and and pictures drawn on the walls of Pompeii. So I'd like to talk for a moment about sex work in the ancient world, because that's a theme that I've noticed that all of you discussed as, as being a, a thing, except obviously uh, in ancient Egypt uh, just now. But uh, Xenia, brothels in ancient Rome, what's, what's the dealio? Yes. So the number of brothels in Pompeii is actually a, a topic of huge debate. Some people say there are 25 brothels in Pompeii. Some people say there are up to 35 brothels in Pompeii. Mary Beard says there's one. Good Lord. Some people would call it a mass debate, wouldn't they? It's such a big debate. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Why is Mary so out of sync with everybody else? Well, so she she says that like any house that happens to have a, a, a dirty picture in it 
is sometimes referred to as a brothel. But she says, like, the, all the evidence points to there just being one large one, like a purpose-built or purpose-used brothel. Obviously, there may have been other uh, establishments that operated on a not-so-sort-of-commercial scale. But she says that there's one big one, and that's really obvious because it's it's absolutely covered in filthy pictures. And it's also got like quite a lot of very small cubicles with beds in. Um, so it, it's kind of obvious what those would have been used for when you when you add the cubicles to the pictures um, and the fact that it was quite large and the fact that almost all of the graffiti on the building talks about what a great time people have had there. That kind of all adds up for Mary. And the rest of the evidence for these other establishments that are sometimes referred to as brothels is not as strong. I remember you saying that prostitution is legal. It is, yes. It's legal and it is taxed. So um, legal prostitutes were called meretrices, singular meretrics, and a brothel was called a lupanar, which is like the word for wolf. So because of that, there's actually a theory that the, the so-called wolf that suckled Romulus and Remus could actually have been a prostitute, um, because that, that was kind of more of a slang term for prostitute, was like a, a lupa. No way. Mm. And prostitutes, if they were a meretrix, they would um, probably, they would be more likely to be free, um, but prostitutes could also be enslaved as well. Um, I think we mentioned before in one of our episodes in our uh, sort of mini series five, our mini series, we talked about how sometimes female babies that were exposed, um, that were unwanted and kind of left for the gods to decide uh, what to do with, uh, they could sometimes be collected by brothels and actually raised as prostitutes, uh, and therefore they would kind of if they would effectively be uh, enslaved that way. However, the trouble with legalized prostitution plus still quite sort of conservative social values in in ancient Rome is that even though it is legal and it is taxed and it is seen as an actual profession once your name goes on to the ediles that the ediles were managing they were responsible for sort of managing the tax collection of, of prostitution once your name goes onto that list it's on there forever so even if you change profession you're still always known as a prostitute um, and that can count against you in the future. Also, the money made from taxing prostitutes was seen as dirty money and there was actually like a, a Roman policy that that money could only go towards the maintenance of public buildings because people might be unhappy if the money were used towards any other kind of social service. Is that a bit like uh, ancient Greek miasma, where it's seen as cursed money and it's dirty and it's filthy and there is actually a sort of something beyond just general distaste or was it just general distaste? Uh, I'll let Meg speak for ancient Greece, but the impression that I get from the Romans is that it, it's kind of general distaste. It's It's very hypocritical because most people would have used prostitutes, I say most people, probably most men, would have used prostitutes at some point, uh, legal or illegal, and yet they're squeamish about the um, the money made from taxation of prostitutes. I do find the um, the potential positive spin on the role of prostitute cropping up in the Romulus and Remus myth quite interesting and a little bit familiar as well from the ancient Near East and, of course, the famous myth that I will bring up in every episode if I can, Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, in which Gilgamesh's future best friend and maybe lover, Enkidu, is kind of tamed by a 
prostitute um, out on the step. She like she he's the wild man, and and she comes and shows him the wonders of of sex and sort of civilized society where you know you can have sex and not just be really hairy. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's the only good thing about civilized society: <laughs> <laughs> sex and grooming. And yeah, just <laughs> just that um, that idea of you know a prostitute giving sucker like that. It seems a bit familiar. I don't know, Xenia, how much stock people have in that, in, in the wolf being a prostitute, but it did seem a tiny bit familiar. Nice. Yeah, it may be sort of deep in sort of subconscious awareness. I think there's definitely something in that that probably quite something quite revealing, maybe, the idea that something comforting about a prostitute, <laughs> something sort of, yeah, interesting. We shall have to call on Dr. Freud. Mm, I think we shall. Dial him up. Meg, I'm going to go over to you next. Prostitution and sex work in the ancient Greek world. What's going on? Um, yeah, super interesting. Legal, totally legal. Uh, taxed again, and that sort of that seems to get mentioned quite a lot. The uh, as any was saying, the the taxation of prostitution, um, and it's a kind of protected job, like a in, in the same way that other jobs are. Yeah, not very stigmatized. I, d- I didn't know that about the Roman, uh, the, the sort of dirty money thing. I don't know if that's true in ancient Greece. I didn't see anything about that. I wouldn't be surprised. I think they do sort of see it as um, there's no stigma in, in using prostitutes or that's not quite the right word, is it? Visiting prostitutes. But there are there are sort of negative connotations to being a prostitute. But there's two types of prostitute in ancient Greece um, or two types of sex worker, which is the key thing. These are all women. They're not saying there wouldn't have been male prostitutes. I think there probably were, but these are the two main types that that they both describe um, female people. So there's pornite, and that is exactly the word you think you just heard. Pornite. That's where we get porn. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I'll I'll go into the etymology in more detail, but just to briefly cover it, um, pornite and hetairai. So pornite are a, a sort of lower class of sex worker, I suppose, to the ancient Greeks. They work in brothels and they work for someone else. Um, whereas hetairai are more kind of more like escorts. Maybe they kind of they run their own lives. They can earn actually really quite a lot of money, um, and they can be sort of professional dancers or, or like um, musicians as well. So they're a bit more of like a higher status prostitute. So those are the two different types. To be a one of the pornai versus one of the hetairai would actually be quite a different type of life um, in ancient Greece. It's an interesting dichotomy in attitudes, isn't it, that, that sort of is persists to today, where you'll get people who use pornography, but then think that women wearing bikinis are slutty. It's like a very odd attitude. Cognitive dissonance. Yeah, exactly. It's like that. Very strange. So, Meg, you can't just throw out porni and then say, I'll get into the etymology of that later. I want to know now. Yeah, so a por- porni is, um, that's the plural is the singular a, a female prostitute and it's like porneia is prostitution so there's an ancient greek word pornographos um which means like writing about prostitutes it doesn't necessarily mean sort of porn or even like literary porn it means so graphos um comes from graphene which is to write as in like uh biography or graphite both from graphene and then so pornographos just means like writing about prostitutes, which then gives us pornography. And I think that's quite a funny distinction that if you asked an ancient Greek, like, do you, do you want some pornography? They'd be like, I, I, I guess, like a book about prostitution. Sounds, sounds interesting. Like, but it's not it's not the sexy or potentially sexy thing that it is now. That is quite interesting. That is very interesting. Hmm. I'm hoping that there's a lot more etymology today. OK, Barney, 
ancient Near East, prostitution. Is it there? What's happening in the ancient Near East? Yeah, so having mentioned Gilgamesh earlier, um, you it, it's possible to tell that in, in, in ancient Mesopotamia there were prostitutes uh, you know around around society um shamhat wouldn't exist or would not likely exist as, as the character that she is without prostitution being a real thing um but it's i think historically been seen as quite difficult to work out um exactly how formalized the roles of prostitutes were we don't have anywhere near as much uh, information that um Xenia has cited for rome for example to do with taxation and, and formalization like that and what's extra tricky is that there are a number of names for particular female social roles that may refer to you know women who are outside of like a patriarchal family or who uh, don't live in their father's household or something like that um, which have historically been translated um, as being related to prostitution somehow but might not actually refer to to formal prostitutes so one of these is is harimtu which is the same word that they use that they use for shamhat and uh Clearly, they're supposed to be attached to the temple in some way, but you know these women might not have a formal, like, sexual service-based role as part of that relationship. So it's a bit of a tricky one. So yes, I think prostitutes around, but not uh, not often and not explicitly or exclusively referred to as prostitutes. And I think over the years, Assyriologists have tried to get to the bottom of whether commercial prostitution did exist next to the temple. Um, quite hard to get to the bottom of that one, but I did find a really good poem. Um, that has been cited as uh, proof that people could pay for sexual services uh, because in this poem, which is uh, sort of addressed from one form of the love goddess, uh, Inanna, to another, Inanna being the precursor to Ishtar, um, it's mentioned that standing will cost you a lamb, I think, and, uh, and leaning up against the wall or something like that will cost you a, a certain weight of, of trade good, which we'll come to in next episode. Amazing. Wait, which is worth more? Uh, <laughs> which is more expensive? This is why we need money. <laughs> um, yeah, half my, bending over is one and a half gidge. Oh. And resting against the wall is one lamb. So I will leave it to you guys to work out which of those <laughs> is worth more. Um, but after this in the poem, the, um, the, the speaker says, Do not dig a canal. Let me be your canal. Do not plough a field. Let me be your field. Farmer, do not search for a wet place. Let this be your wet place. Whoa. Dang. Let me be your furrow. Oh, my God. Let me be your wet place. It's quite, like... It's nice. quite a lot. I think we need to call on Ishtar to bonk bonk this poet on the head and send them to horny jail. Yes, absolutely. I mean, would would these sort of euphemisms, farm-based euphemisms, work now? Like, let me be your silage. Let me be your grain storage. Let me be your <laughs> manure pit. Oh, God. <laughs> Sexy. We still say plough, don't we? We do. Yeah, that's true. Speaking of very pleasurable poetry, um, I'd love to talk about female pleasure, if I can, because I've got a perception in my head that the ancient world didn't really give a fig about ancient female pleasure. Is that or is that not true? Zenia, I'm going to start with you, if that's okay. Sure. So, yeah, this was a a nice thing to come across in my research. For the most part, um, you're right, Flo, they didn't give much of a fig about female pleasure. However, there are some Roman medical texts that refer to to female pleasure during sex. Our friend Serranus, 
from again our mini series series five on women and and children and childbirth um and there are quite a few references in Roman graffiti, mainly men boasting about how much pleasure they can give women, which I'm not sure we should actually um, <laughs> set much store by those. Um, but there is a surprise appearance, a nice link between poetry and female pleasure. Our friend Lucretius from the physics episode, very strange, he's popping up. He got physical. He did. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it is part of his poem there is a line about women enjoying sex and wanting to get pleasure out of it ah good for lucretius mm-hmm. man of many talents apparently good for lucretius's <laughs> wife actually i think <laughs> Zenia, i love that i love that like evidence in maybe an unusual place for female pleasure i found a line i was looking at prostitution um and evidence for like how much prostitutes cost this links back to that discussion as well and there's a line from one of um, aristophanes comedies where a slave mentions visiting a prostitute which is interesting because it that gives us some it's obviously a joke and it's in a comedy so all of those normal caveats apply but it potentially suggests that there could be very cheap prostitutes um if slaves are regularly visiting them and anyway the slave says oh I visited this prostitute yesterday at at midday and I told her to get on top and she got angry at me (laughs) so it's quite funny it's made me laugh I told her to get on top and she got angry at me and asked if I wanted to set up a tyranny like hippie ass um that's quite quite funny if you're an ancient (laughs) Greek (laughs) (laughs) it's funny if you're not (laughs) yeah I think it is genuinely quite funny hippie ass was the the last tyrant of Athens we've spoken about him before in the context of the um tyrannicides it's his brother who was killed um, in like the 6th century BC. So it's it's just a funny kind of political joke. It's like being like, what do you mean you're telling me what to do? Like, you're acting like... You're, you're f***ing me harder than the Tories are, Jesus. <laughs> that's it. That's the one. Yeah, exactly. I just think that's a, a very... It feels quite modern to be like, are you trying to set up a tyranny like hippie ass? But yeah, I, I think it's nice. But anyway, it does suggest that there's some sort of... Again, it's a comedy, it's a joke, but it suggests that there's some kind of agency there and that potentially the, the female prostitute is saying I don't want to do that let's do my way instead um so yeah just thought that was interesting okay then I'm going to uh I was gonna say I'm gonna move on and do masturbation but that's not what's gonna happen on the topic of pleasure let's move over to self-pleasure Meg I know that you have got some fun words for us today some sexy sexy words yeah I just thought this is quite brief but I think it's funny there's um there's the the ancient Greek term um for masturbate is a, a word defestai um well, that's one of them. There's some other ones. Um, but I think this is such an interesting word because it means to soften, um, which in my, like, that, I don't think that's normally what masturbation involves, um, for at least mostly for men. So I think it's, a, it's an odd word. It's kind of so euphemistic. It's almost the opposite of what it means. But it comes from a word, um, defoul, is the active version of that word and it means to soften by working with the hand to make supple it'd be used of leather and then ancient greek has an active and um passive voices but also a middle which is somewhere in between active and passive and it normally means to do whatever the action is to yourself so if active is i hit someone um if passive is i'm hit by somebody middle would be i hit myself that's an odd example to use in this context but um so it's the middle version of this verb that means to sort of soften leather. So you're sort of being like, I soften leather, but to myself. So it's kind of active and passive. Um, and that's the word that they, they use uh, euphemistically for masturbation. I'm just imagining how sunburnt a penis should be to be described as leather and to describe the action as softening <laughs> leather. That's quite bizarre. It's odd, isn't it? I think maybe it's more about the motion. 
the, the motion. Yeah, do you, that actually makes suffering. a lot more sense. Yeah. I think now you've said that, it's really obvious. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, rather than, yeah, the, uh, the a hide. Link. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Still a mental image I wish I hadn't conjured. Um, that Sorry is that. that is fun. That is fun. Um, so we've heard a lot about men and um, women sort of being uh, t- t- taking a, a role in in sex work, and we haven't heard a huge amount about married sex because that was that was sh- sh- private, sacred, holy stuff. Um, what about uh, gay relationships amongst women in the ancient world? Because there is something that I've been going to say, which is that I know that there is an island called Lesbos in ancient Greece. I was told, I went on holiday to Greece and I was told that if you get out of the boat and you swim in the water around Lesbos, you turn gay, which I did and it only sort of really half worked. So could you could you <laughs> elaborate? Yeah, you need to swim around the whole island to sort of get past that. Uh, like, that sexual, I only went halfway. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be it. That's classic, classic rookie, rookie mistake there, Flo. Um, yes. So Lesbos is an island um, and it is the island from which Sappho is from. Um, and Sappho is the most famous ancient Greek lesbian. And the so because she's from this island called Lesbos and she writes poetry about loving women, um, that is where we get the word lesbian and also obviously the word sapphic, so both similar words. But yeah, so it's really cool. She she wrote lots of love poems, um, some, some of them explicitly about women. There's been lots and lots of debates, as you'd imagine, about whether or not she's writing, imagining that she's a man. Um, and like, you know, maybe that's true. I think the simplest explanation is often the best. What's that Occam's razor? And she's a woman and she's writing, she uses like female pronouns for herself and for the people she's writing about. So the simplest explanation is that she was a woman who fancied other women. And they're really lovely poems. There's the, the most famous one, which Ovid famously translated into Latin, um, is one where she's she's sort of looking at a couple and it, she says, obviously this is a, a rough translation, That man seems to me to be equal to gods who sits opposite you and listens close to your sweet voice and your lovely laughter, which flutters my heart and my chest. When I look at you for a moment, I cannot speak. My tongue has broken. A subtle fire is under my skin. With my eyes, I see nothing. My ears hum. A cold sweat pours all over me. Um, That's not the whole poem. That's a bit of it. But I think it's, it's such a famous poem and it's so lovely because it starts with this. That man seems to me to be equal to the gods. And you think, oh, okay, she she fancies the man. And then it turns out it's just his proximity to her actual love interest, this woman, um, which is in in her laughter and her sweet voice. So it is a really nice poem. And that's the most famous one. Um, But that is where we get both the words lesbian and sapphic. It's like the gay version of um, Teenage Dirtbag, isn't it? Like, she's she's beautiful, but she's got a boyfriend. She doesn't know who I am. Yeah. Oh, there's a kind of Jolene slant to it as well, maybe. Like, please don't take my girl. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I also looked up the actual etymology of lesbos, and it's apparently originally a Hittite word um, that means forested or woody. So that's what lesbian actually means, is uh, forested. Loads of bush. Yeah, exactly, Flo. (laughs) Sorry, I'm very sorry. I've been very restrained, actually, you know. I think you have, I think I I deserve some praise. As long as you have a safe word for your restraints. (laughs) Oh, dang. Very good. Very, very good. I've got a fun fact from ancient Rome. So one of the, we talked about um, Roman poets and writing uh, lots of lovely poems for their girlfriends. Um, So Catullus calls his girlfriend in his poetry, he calls her Lesbia. But 
he's not referring to a lesbian. He's referring to um, the fact, he's referring to himself, actually. <laughs> he's referring to the fact that he writes in sapphic meter, in, in a rhythm, a poetic rhythm, that actually imitates the way Sappho writes. So that's why he refers to his girlfriend as lesbia. He's referring to her as like the, uh, it, it's a reference to, to the form of the poetry, not necessarily to um, his his girlfriend's sexual leanings, which wouldn't make sense anyway because she's his girlfriend <laughs> interesting i didn't know that that's very cool interesting link senya while i've got you on the line um gay sex in the ancient roman world what's going on yeah lots <laughs> hey woo <laughs> <laughs> maybe not quite as much as ancient greece and the thing is it's all very sort of loaded with like social status and uh, the Romans really cared about who was doing what when it came to gay sex. Um, so it was it was about power and it was about hierarchy. Um, basically, if you were higher class um, as a Roman man, then you were supposed to be the one uh, doing the penetrating. So it was okay to have a relationship with um, like a male slave or perhaps uh, a man who was of lower social status than you as long as you were also within that relationship um, the active one because if you were the passive one in that relationship that made you more like um, a woman in in the Roman perception. So we have quite uh, an interesting example of this whereby Caesar you know, fairly high class, fairly authoritative, you might think, within Roman society. Um, he went on a diplomatic mission to the king of Bithynia, who was called Nicomedes, and a rumour went round. We will never know if it's true. We don't know if this is true at all. But um, a rumour went round that he was the passive partner in a relationship with King Nicomedes. Uh, and so he got the nickname, sorry, but this is quite funny, the Queen of Bithynia as a result. That's great. <laughs> Bring it back. Someone, someone calling him an old queen is really yeah. quite tickled me. Imagine if that's how things happen politically now. Do you imagine Putin visiting someone and him being a bottom? And that would just be all over the news. I'd imagine so, yeah. <laughs> it would, yeah. Yeah, actually, thinking about it, that'd be nice. Maybe we haven't moved on. <laughs> Maybe um, but interestingly, no one really cared or took enough interest in the dynamic of um, lesbian relationships. So perhaps in a way they had it easier in the ancient world. Um, I think it's appropriate for us to talk about um, pederasty in the context of it being something that was socially acceptable at the time. What we would now uh, use the use the phrase pedophilia, because that's something that has commonly come up in, in Roman and Greek um, research, isn't it? Yes. Um, so pederasty, which literally means boy love, um, it's just, yeah, er erasty is like same root as kind of eros or whatever, um, is, is the most common form of same-sex relationships in Greece. And in some ways it's kind of like, it's the, it's the uh, type of relationship that we have the most evidence for in some ways, because of what I was saying earlier, that it's between two men, um, or a man and a boy. And, men and boys are much more sort of valued in ancient Greek society. So lots of discussion about it, um, lots of literary sources, lots of visual sort of evidence. 
I think it is really important to be very sensitive about this. Um, but I think it's also important to say in Athens, it is entirely normal. Um, and it's the it's the sort of structure of, of life for elite men is that older men would take a younger lover. Um, and sometimes this would be what we now describe as paedophilia. Definitely. I don't think that's like controversial. Um, if it's a, you know, a 30 year old man and a 14 year old boy, say we would call that paedophilia um, as we should. But sometimes it wouldn't be. So it just it's an older, younger relationship. And like Xenia was saying, it's an active, passive relationship. So penetrating or being penetrated. Um, so sometimes they might be, I don't know, like 25 and 18 or something. So it's a tricky topic to discuss because it's so important and so common in ancient Greece. But obviously now um, has a completely different kind of cultural meaning uh, and it's something we wouldn't think of as acceptable but it is interesting so the the sort of age differences are debated we don't know exactly there weren't sort of strict boundaries but in general the young man would be post-pubescent so not a not a sort of small child but a, um, a teenager but before they can grow a full beard um, again that's entirely that will be very different for men uh, in general that so I think it's not not all men sort of magically grow a full beard the minute they turn 17 or whatever um, so it's it's quite subjective it's quite personal and it's a social relationship um, as well as a sexual relationship it's a sort of mentor system so the older man is sort of responsible for sort of guiding the younger man through public life maybe through um, a career path through the sort of military system as well in Thebes they have or possibly had a, a sacred band of 300 soldiers who were all um, men in relationships, sort of pairs of lovers, which is cool. I think they, they sound fun. So it is genuinely difficult. And I think we have to be very sensitive about it, but it is also very common and um, yeah, very kind of broad church, really. It's seen as almost a completely different set of values. It's not this, it's not like gay in the, the way we, we'd use that term. It's not seen as a, a sort of different type of sexuality. It's seen as an almost different, entirely different sort of practice. I wonder if um, they thought that if there were couples um, maybe fighting in wars that they'd fight even harder to make sure that their lovers were protected and safe from harm. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. It's that the sort of bond of love. Um, and in Thebes, it's the pederasty lasted in longer into adulthood as well. So it was more socially acceptable to continue those relationships sort of throughout your life rather than just in that limited period with the younger and older man. Well, like you've said, Meg, it's a it's a relationship pairing that today we have very different attitudes to and on that topic Barney I think you have had a very unusual pairing of individuals don't you in a sexual context I know I said that there wasn't going to be very much uh, Egypt today and obviously Ishtar can't follow us on our journey to Egypt since she holds no power there uh, but yeah there's a pretty great coupling that comes up in well I say great um, it's it's pretty pretty grotesque in, in the real world, but uh, in religious art, it's lovely. Uh, so there's this, there's this coupling of two of the gods of ancient Egypt <clears throat> that appears in religious art accompanying the myth of Osiris. Uh, so Osiris uh, is the, the dead god of ancient Egypt. He is a god associated with pharaohs and pharaohs become Osiris after they die. Um, and in the myth, uh, Osiris is made dead by his brother Seth and Isis, his wife, uh, the fertility goddess needs to bring him back to life and uh luckily in osiris's mummiform death pose uh he's retained a rather large and erect phallus uh so oh. yes 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 a priapism that's right and uh that means that isis is able to come back and and lay with him and uh for some reason in some of these representations she takes the form of a falcon 
for a hawk in order to do that and so oh. that leads to the <laughs> and so that leads to these rather remarkable images of Osiris laying flat on his back massive erection and a bird perched on top of it <laughs> wow yeah so not 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 bestiality um because obviously that is that is his wife <laughs> have some respect please <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i mean I, I don't have loads to say about that but, yeah. <laughs> just saying it i'm it. just saying it. I, I used to have a printed out picture of that scene on one of my desks at a previous job um which never failed to draw comment um but on the topic of um, <laughs> on the topic of people having sex with things that they that maybe shouldn't have <laughs> sorry carry on <laughs> There's a, rit- there's a ritual um, in Mesopotamia um, called sacred marriage, um, which academics have argued a lot about over the years. Um, it's supposed to represent uh, the fertility created by Ishtar and her lover Dumuzi, the sort of the shepherd god. It's part of the New Year's festival in Babylonia. Uh, the idea being that the king takes on the role of Dumuzi and couples with Ishtar in some way. Um, and what, what there is no consensus on is whether the king literally has sex with somebody who's representing Ishtar, i.e. like a member of the temple, a priestess or something like that, who you know may or may not be a fully consenting partner in this role. Uh, or that it was sort of just a symbolic union and, you know, that the ritual was was read aloud, but the king didn't actively do anything. Uh, or the third way, which is why I've brought it up now, is that maybe he um, he sort of coupled with a statue. Mm. Yeah, mm. representing Ishtar. So the sort of the, um, the waifu body pillow equivalent of, um, <laughs> <laughs> of ancient Mesopotamia. Very cool. I can just imagine him going, could you just paint it like nicer boobies or something? I just, oh. <laughs> People are watching. It's embarrassing. I've got focus. <laughs> so on that very sexual note, I think it might be time to draw this episode to its climax. And we can have a think about our favourite things that we've learnt today. Senya, I'm going to start with you, if you would. Yay, thank you for starting with me, because <laughs> I want to take two figures, one plus. Yeah, that's so oh. good. <laughs> Again, please, listeners, do not Google that. You may get an autocorrect suggestion for something else uh, that is deeply unpleasant. Uh, Since that was one of Barney's uh, contributions, I will uh, go over to you, Barney. What's your favourite thing that you've learned today? I quite liked Xenia explaining about the um, formalisation of prostitution in ancient Rome because, uh, you know, there's that famous idiom that two inevitable things in, in life are death and taxes. Um, I think sex has got to get in there somehow. Um, So I do like that, you know, sex and taxes, two very inevitable (laughs) things yoked together by the Romans. Sex and death and rock and roll. Meg, what was your favourite thing from today? I was actually also going to say, Xenia talking about, I really, I thought that was really interesting what you were saying about how many brothels there were. Was it in Pompeii? Yeah. Whether there's one or 25 or 35 and how just a house with a a sort of sexual image in it does not a brothel make. Uh, I thought that was really, really interesting. Just just like Barney was saying how not every untranslatable word is a prostitute. Yeah, exactly. My favourite thing was from you, Meg, and that was the concept that I have in my mind that a time traveller might go to ancient Greece, swap pornography with an ancient Greek, and the ancient Greek would be completely scandalised, and the time traveller <laughs> would be just bored. Just, <laughs> oh, just some factual information about porni, uh, prostitutes. How dull, how tedious. 
the 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 you know the time traveler would be bored, but the ancient Greek I don't think would be scandalized by our pornography as well as writing about prostitutes they had proper proper stuff on pots and and that kind of thing so i think they might both have be able to exchange some some good stuff that's true and we had some really good against law today uh, about uh, lesbos and uh, lesbia and lesbians and also about uh, how prudish the ancients weren't uh, so you can join us next time for a slightly less sexy episode of against the law if you've enjoyed today's episode, you can always choose to support us on Patreon. We've got all sorts of tiers for every budget, starting from just £3 a month. Benefits include getting each episode a day early, stickers and your name in cuneiform. You can find us on Twitter at Against Law and you can also find us on TikTok at Against the Law Podcast. We're also always happy to hear suggestions, questions about the podcast and other requests if you want to email us. Our email is againstthelawpodcast at gmail.com.